Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach. Have you ever wondered how well suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz. And you can find the quiz right on the homepage of my website at sumatisparks.com. And when you request the quiz, you'll be automatically added to my mailing list, and you'll be the first to learn about my virtual events and to receive occasional helpful tidbits of advice and information on how to add more love, passion, and joy into your life. So today, I'm really excited to have two guests. They are the co-authors of a book that's coming out soon. The first is Marsha Baczynski. For 17 years, Marsha has been a sexual communication coach. She's the co-founder of Cuddle Party and currently the CEO of Asking for What You Want. And Marsha is a real sought-after presenter at conferences around North America and a teacher for the School of Consent. My other guest is Erica Scott, who is the creator of the Consent Culture Intro Workshop. Erica is a survivor of child sexual abuse, and she's worked for 20 years in a male-dominated in- industry and also is the mother of, a young adult, of young adult children, more than one. Um, and so because of this, she feels a real urgency to bring more effective consent education to a wider audience. Welcome to the show, Erica and Marsha. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here again. Glad to have you back, Marsha. Marsha was on by herself a few years ago, so it's really great to have you back to talk about your wonderful book. And I saw somebody post on your page or about your book on Facebook today, Marsha, saying, if anybody is to write a book about consent, it's you. So I'm really, really (laughs) happy to have you here. (laughs) Um, Now, Erica, I'm just getting getting to know, so um, I wanted to find out a little bit about your background, Erica, um, how did you come to become a consent educator? Okay, so, um, you know, I came to it from a different uh, background than Marsha, where I had a lot of issues around consent, and I had a lot of boundary issues because of being abused as a child. And um, so that all culminated in me having a bit of a a health breakdown from all the stress um, in my mid-40s, and I was looking for something more meaningful in my life, and that's when I came across Cuddle Party, and I realized that there was something that I needed and that could help me, and I ended up becoming a Cuddle Party facilitator, and uh, um, if anyone isn't uh, familiar with Cuddle Party, the first hour of the party, basically, is a welcome circle that is basically consent training. And uh, where uh, people do exercises to practice asking for what they want in a safe way, to um, practice saying no and saying yes, and what to do if there may be. And all of this was so useful to me and also for my participants. And I would see people having epiphanies and learning and growing, and, and it's a lot of fun. And I just thought, this is such important of such imp- um, such important material and it needs to go get out further into the world. And um, because, you know, I would try to get some people to come to Cuddle Party and they would tell me, no, I will never come to Cuddle Party. <laughs> mm. And so 
a lot of times it seems like the people who I feel would most benefit from it are the ones that are most reticent to come. And so I was started brainstorming that. How do we get these skills to a wider audience? And that's when I approached Marsha and I asked her, um, I should say when I uh, took my Foundations of Facilitation course for Cuddle Party, I met Marsha and that was really wonderful. It was a wonderful weekend where I got to meet a lot of people, great people in the Cuddle Party um, family. And so um, I approached Marsha and I asked her if it would be okay for me to work with some of the material and to add other things and to try and make something that is, um, you know, not as threatening perhaps as Cuddle Party is for a lot of people Mm -hmm. and more accessible to more people. And um, she said yes. And I started putting it together and workshopping it. Um, uh, And I started um, presenting it actually when I was living in Honolulu. And again, people were having epiphanies and telling me it was changing their lives. And, um, you know, it's really powerful stuff. So, awesome. uh, yeah, that's, that's how I got into this. Well, that's really cool. I didn't realize that you came in through Cuddle Party. Yay. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, Marsha, um, so, yeah, you created Cuddle Party many years ago. And it kind of evolved into your own business, asking for what you want. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your origin story? Yeah, my I did not know that this is what I was going to grow up to do. You know, when I told <laughs> my mom that I was I was doing cuddle parties, she's like, but you didn't even like to cuddle when you were a kid. You couldn't sit still long enough. Um, <laughs> but the thing that I, I have always been in love with um, in everything that I do, it, you know, whether it's open relationship coaching, cuddle party, uh, you know, training on, you know, asking for what you want, all boundaries classes, all of it is the communication part. The how do you sort of notice that you want something, bring it to another person, have that moment of vulnerability, and then create something together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we created uh, Read My House when I created Cuddle Party in 2004, which is unbelievable that it's 18 years old at this point Mm. um and you know the thing that erica came to me with was a common piece of feedback that we got which was that the whole idea of cuddling was really intimidating to people even though one of the rules one of the rules of cuddle party is you don't have to cuddle anyone at a cuddle party ever (laughs) but people especially people who are used to having their boundaries crossed people who are not used to speaking up for their boundaries, people who don't know how to generate these kinds of conversations for whatever reason, they didn't believe us. And it makes sense. Like if you're used to having your boundaries crossed, why would you believe people when they say you are at choice? Because a lot of people will say that and not mean it. So, you know, I was really excited when Erica wanted to um, play around with the content, you know, and, and see if she could come up with something that was like a little bit more accessible, accessible to younger audiences, accessible to people who were maybe too intimidated to come to a cuddle party, 
more accessible for maybe the workplace. And I was like, yeah, go for it. Like more of this in the world is better as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, so she went, she went and did that and I went on and lived my life. And then she popped back up and was like, Hey, uh, do you want to write a book? <laughs> mm. And, um, yeah. So in 2019, we decided to write a book together, not knowing what the world had in store for us. Right. Uh, and I was nervous about how busy I was. And then I got very not busy very quickly. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so we spent most of last year, um, cranking this out and it's, really exciting that it's coming out uh next week so that's how i got here (laughs) awesome well thank you for that and is your book um aimed for like what is the audience for your book um it's for okay oh go ahead um yeah so um it's aimed at teachers and leaders of youth uh teens and tweens um and so the actual, the subtitle of the book is A Handbook for Educators. So it, the, the exercises in the workshop really are good for anyone age 10 and up. But in the book, we focused on people who are educating and leading teens and tweens. That's fantastic. That's so great. And why did you choose, Marsha, why did you choose to aim it toward youth? Well, really, Erica came to me with the idea, and I was I, you know, we have gotten a lot of um, questions about how do we make cuddle party accessible to young people, and and you know we've had a lot of conversations about how to do that, but it, there's always this sort of awkward thing when there's an adult facilitator leading a cuddling exercise, like exercises mm-hmm. around cuddling, and so I had a, an interest for many many years on how can we take this content and make it to a more make it more accessible to um, to that audience. And it hadn't occurred to me that I could just write a book about it. And when you <laughs> approached me about it, I was like, oh, that's a good idea. Right. Um, so, you know, I'm really, my brother is a, is a um, high school principal. You know, I have a lot of family who've been, who've worked in education for many years and taught at various levels. And obviously I have a ton of friends who have kids. And so, as I've been getting older, you know, I created Cuddle Party, co-created Cuddle Party when I was 26, but now I'm in my 40s, and I'm, like, surrounded with people who have, you know, 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds, and they're, they're deep in these conversations and looking for um, tools for, for themselves as parents, but also, mm-hmm. you know, I have a lot of um, colleagues <laughs> who are working with young people and who are looking for tools, and a lot of the stuff that's out there is either aimed at slightly older audiences and it's explicitly around sex, mm-hmm. which, you know, that was the big epiphany with Cuddle Party is it's a non-sexual event and mm-hmm. having consent in a non-sexual context lowers the stakes and we really wanted to give young people an opportunity to have that. The other thing that we noticed when we were researching for the book was a lot of it's really fear-based. And mm-hmm. I am not a person who comes from a history Uh, an abuse history. I'm a person who came from a family who, despite my parents being quite conservative, um, my mother was also worked um, as a nurse for um, 
pregnant teens and, and was very involved in the foster care system and worked with a lot of kids who had experienced abuse. And so she was very committed to giving me and my brother a very strong sense of bodily autonomy. Mm-hmm. And so I really have felt for years really passionate about passing that gift along to other people, mm-hmm. um, particularly young people. And that's, that's been really meaningful to me. So uh, I can't say that it was my idea, but I'm extremely glad that Erica came to me with it because it's something that I'm really excited about. And I feel like there's a lot of applications um, to to really build a more, like, joy and fun. Because like, to me, that's the thing about consent is that there's this idea that it's, like, dr- this dry thing that we're supposed to do to in, in order to avoid bad things happening. And in my <laughs> worldview, it's this way we can relate so that we can have a lot more fun and ease and joy and play at any age and in, 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 in a lot of different contexts. So I'm really excited to bring it from that perspective. Um, and I felt like that was kind of missing in a lot of the literature. So, Right. Like I can imagine um, once you feel confident in your ability to set boundaries and, um, you know, trust that you can have consent, then your whole nervous system relaxes and everything's more fun. Right, Erica? Absolutely, yes. And when things are fun, um, the uh, retention, memory retention is better. Um, uh, learning is, is easier. And, and when people are interacting, that's also um, very helpful for people to actually learn and remember what they learned. So mm-hmm. it's really good to have um, this taught in a fun, interactive way. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And so, Marsha, how have things changed for, like, how have you seen things change in the world since you began teaching consent 17 years ago? <laughs> oh, gosh, even longer than that, because I was doing some of this stuff even as in high school and college. It's a mm. different world, I have to say. I think, I mean, we touch on this in the book a little bit, um, about how more recent changes like the Me Too movement have affected the consent conversation you know, when I was coming up, a lot of sex education really just focused on don't get pregnant, don't get AIDS, and if you have sex, you'll probably die. Like, that was sort of the messaging <laughs> of the 90s, you know. <laughs> like it's, it's, it was a bad scene, man. Um, and pleasure was not part of the conversation at all. It was just don't do it. If you do it, you're a bad person. Um, I was not deeply immersed in purity culture, but that was very adjacent because I grew up in the South, and so there's a lot of evangelical purity culture around. And um, that's still out there, and it's still affecting a lot of people, but I do think that there's a much more nuanced conversation available um, where people are understanding, you know, it's not just no means no, which is a good start, uh, but, you know, yes means yes is kind of the, the next iteration. And, and, you know, people are looking at, well, what is enthusiastic consent, which is a, a bit of a complicated concept, um, you know. Uh, but we talk about some of that stuff in the book. Um, I think another thing that has changed is that there's a lot more, certainly a lot more awareness of not straight people, like, you know, queer identities and things like that, and the idea that 
sex can be pleasurable for women, I think, is just an, a conversation that just wasn't really happening 20 years ago and mm-hmm. now is a much more central piece of the conversation. And that's all really relevant to the consent conversation. And we talk about this in the book because the old model of consent was what we call the gatekeeper model. And in the gatekeeper model, one person, usually the man, wants the sex. And in the gatekeeper model, the other person, usually the woman, has the sex. And so the Mm -hmm. man pursues the woman, and her job is just to say yes or no. She doesn't have any desires of her own. Mm -hmm. And he's supposed to always want the sex. You know, he's not allowed to have any nuance either. And so there's this model, this gatekeeper model that is permission-based, which is, you know, not the worst thing in the world to ask permission, better than nothing. But what we're really trying to bring to the table is a model of consent that's collaborative and not mm-hmm. just gatekeeping, where both people are having desires, both people have interests, both people want to do stuff, whatever, whatever the stuff is. <laughs> do you want to dance? Do you want to play? Do you want to have sex, do you want to make out, whatever it is, um, and actually have it be like, okay, what are we both interested in? All right, let's, let's do the things that sound fun to both of us, rather than one person wants a thing and then the other person, their only job is to say yes or no. Right. So I think that the way that that has shifted with um, the conversation around pleasure and that you know, women are sexual people too. <laughs> it's a really big <laughs> shift that has impacted the consent conversation that has a big ripple effects. Mm-hmm. Did you want to add something to that, Erica? Um, it just got me thinking about the, um, it's somebody's job to say yes or no. Um, got me thinking about one of my favorite chapters in the book is about what to do when you're a maybe. Mm-hmm. And, um, how it happens that people say maybe when they mean when they mean no, and also something else that um, Marsha calls the habitual yes, um, where we find ourselves saying yes before we've even considered what we're saying yes to, um, mm-hmm. because anything else is any other response is unthinkable, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, there's just um, yeah there are a lot of skills that we can tap into to help us to in that area where it's like um, either we're having a hard time saying no or we're not sure if we're a no or a yes and uh, what to do then. So I really, Mm -hmm. that's one of my favorite things in the book because I think that is a a really difficult area for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And do you have, um, do you, does the book contain like, the structure of a workshop for the teachers and leaders to use? Yes. 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 It's uh, it's structured. You know, I'm over here giggling because the truth is is that (laughs) the first third of the book is really aimed at facilitators and educators. And then there's the workshop. Each of the rest of the chapters sort of explains a central concept of consent and then gives the workshop section Mm. Um, to practice it and, you know, that you can walk through with, with either younger kids, like, you know, t- the 10 to 13, 10 to 14, or even older kids or young adults, or honestly really adults. Like this is totally a workshop that people could use with adults and still have a lot of fun with. Um, but the, the, thing, the thing I keep giggling about is, like, honestly the second two-thirds of the book is really applicable to anybody who's interested in consent. Because mm-hmm. these skills I, I find, you know, in my work with adults over the years is so many of us 
we do the habitual yes. We still have the gatekeeper model of consent in our heads. We um, don't know what to do when we're a maybe. Um, we don't know how to recognize a freeze response. You know, there's so many pieces of things that we talk about in here that we want young people to have access to. But really, I want everybody to have access to. Yeah, well, I remember reading an article about a woman, an Indian woman who, I forget if she was born in India or born in the U.S., but she was, you know, American. And she went to India to uh, do research on consent, and she found that most of the men there couldn't even grasp what the word meant, like what the concept even meant. Mm -hmm. That just really stood out for me. that A lot of people haven't even occurred to them that there's such a thing as consent. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's changing fast in India, though. Actually, I was just in India um, just before the pandemic started, and uh, I was actually invited there to teach consent. And um, things in India are um, evolving very quickly around women's rights, um, around consent. Um, yeah, it's, it's exciting to see. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. That's so great. There's a real movement uh, there now. Uh-huh. And so what, um, how is the book different from like, cause there are other consent workshops out there. I know you said that it's more geared toward younger people, but older people can use it too. Are there other ways that it's unique? Yeah, I mean, I would say that that one of the, there's a few core differences. Um, You know, a lot of consent workshops are exclusively focused on sexual consent, which is great, but I think kind of limiting as a model. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing that I think is um, really common with a lot of other consent workshops is they're really focused on preventing sexual violence. Again, very worthy goal, um, but ours is more focused on taking these skills and using them to foster higher relational intelligence, um, more collaborative interactions. And to me, that feels like a more foundational piece. Like if we can get people before they're even um, having to navigate sexual violence or the potential for sexual violence and really give them those skills to be like set their boundaries to notice how they feel when you know, something feels off to them, notice how, the, how it feels in their body um, when something's right. And then I would say the other thing is that um, a lot, a lot, a lot, and this is something Erica can speak to more, a lot of the things that are out there are very just discussion-based. And mm-hmm. we, what we learned from Cuddle Party is people get it so much faster when they actually are having something that's interactive, that they're practicing, that they can feel the difference in their body and have a more um, you know, embodied experience, a somatic experience of the things we're trying to teach. And so well, all three of those things, the, the you know, expanding beyond the sexual, expanding to be um, more preventative or like earlier in the prevention process for sexual violence, and then making it more uh, somatically, experientially oriented. And Erica, I don't know if you want to speak to that more, but I would say those are kind of the major major things that are different. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. I did a fair bit of research to see what else was out there, um, partly because I had to put a business plan together. Um, and there's just really nothing else exactly like this. And um, mostly what I found was um, programs of 
you know, showing a movie and then having a discussion, um, which is great. But it's just, it's kind of theoretical. And like Marcia said, when people have an embodied sense of uh, this is what I can do and this when this happens, this is what I can say, um, and they have a chance to practice it, it's just a completely, it gives people confidence in a completely different way mm-hmm. um, moving forward, yeah. What are, what's an example of some things that um, young people of that age group might encounter and how has how do the skills in your um, book help them? There's actually one part where I have a little demonstration of what it looks like when people are um, being manipulative or crossing your boundaries. And so, and that, that comes from stories that were told to me um, of what young people are going through right now. And there's a lot of uh, pressure, like, come on, you're, um, you know, what's wrong with you? Like, um, or you're mean if you don't do what I asked you to do. Or, um, and so uh, if young people have an idea that they can say no and that it's, they're not wrong to say no, and they feel that in their body, that's like, you know, so helpful in that, in that circumstance. Mm-hmm. So doesn't it start yeah, at a really I, young age when, like, our aunts and uncles and grandmothers come up and just, you know, kiss us and pull our cheek and do all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff? It's just kind of like a f- freedom that, like, children don't have any body autonomy. And uh, you were going to say something, Marcia? Yeah, I was going to say that um, to piggyback on what Erica was saying, but I also want to speak to your point, Um you know, one of the things we do in the workshop is we actually identify those kinds of manipulative behaviors as people trying to manipulate you around consent. And one of the things that um, Erica had talked to me about was just what a revelation it is to have it clearly labeled for a lot mm-hmm. of people to see, mm-hmm. like, we've all seen it, but we don't necessarily have the words to know why it feels so crap um, when somebody's mm-hmm. doing that. So that's, that, and we and we also have some stuff about like consent online and you know speaking to some of the issues that young people run into um, with consent online. Um, there's of which there are many, and an entire book could be written about that alone. Uh, but we do touch on it in the book as well. Um, but you know, to your point, Sumati, like the um, there's two things that are going on for kids. One is they're having interactions with other kids. Well, other kids are you know, you're, you're, you're a kid, you're learning how to be a person, right? So you don't necessarily know. And kids pull each other's hair and do things to each other, and then the adults around them are supposed to give them feedback about what's not okay, mm-hmm. um, which sometimes they get and sometimes they don't. But then they're also learning from how the adults around them treat them. And, you know, when I, when I talk about my childhood, I didn't realize growing up what a unique thing it was that my mom didn't make me hug and kiss relatives if I didn't want to. That -hmm. was something that she was forced to do as a child. She felt it was really damaging to her for a lot of reasons. Um, And she didn't want my brother and I to experience that. And so um, having, having, um, you know, having some adults in your life, whether they're parents who are reading this book, teachers who are teaching this, 
anybody who hangs out with kids who are like looking for models for how to interact around like to how to model consent with young people um, in a you know very non-sexual bodily autonomy kind of way um, you know when you have adults who can actually see the stuff that they've also been we've all been swimming in this sort of non-consensual soup for so long it's helpful for the adults around the kids to have these distinctions and to have this awareness so that they can then, you know, ask, do you want a hug? And wait and pause and see what the child says and let the child make a decision and then respect that decision. And each one of those little interactions teaches children, teaches young people, hey, my opinion matters. Like, I get to say what happens to my body. I, there is a point in speaking up because people will listen. And so, you know, as somebody who's worked with adults my whole career um, and seen the impact of what having that disregarded does to people, um, I'm really excited to get this in the hands of a lot of adults <laughs> who can then start yeah. to model that and help make those distinctions for young people earlier. Fantastic. Um, so I'm just going to take a break here and remind people if you're uh, just joining us, this is Leading Edge Love Radio, and I am your host, Sumati Sparks. I do open relationship and polyamory coaching, and you can find me at sumatisparks.com. And you are listening to Leading Edge Love Radio with our guests today, Marsha Baczynski and Erica Scott, the co-authors of the new book called uh, <laughs> Creating Consent Cultures. <laughs> Creating Consent Culture. I'm really excited about this book that's coming out on Friday. If you have any questions for Marsha or Erica, please feel free to call in. The number is 657-383-1132. You won't interrupt us. You'll be put on hold, and we will get to your call at the right time. Again, that phone number is 657-383-1132. So, um, Erica, what are your hopes for your book? Okay, so um, I want to spread consent culture all over the world as much as possible, one workshop at a time. And um, so I want to just get this workshop out there as fast as possible to as many places as possible. So I'm hoping that, you know, teachers can take the book and lead some of the exercises themselves. Or if they don't want to do it themselves, and they want to bring someone in, I'm going to be starting uh, training people to lead the workshop in uh, this spring. And um, hopefully, sooner than later, we'll have a bunch of people that can go and lead the workshops in schools. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's um, – so I actually have a business called Creating Consent Culture and a website, creatingconsentculture.com, and um, that's – that's where I'm taking it. Um, it's a passion project for me. It's really about um, just getting it out there. Fantastic. I love it. Looks like we have a caller. Are you ready to take their call? Yeah. Great. Okay, here we go. Hello, caller. Hi. Um, I, I'm calling in. I, I love this topic, and Boy, do I wish I had had more of this as a kid, but I'm, I know as an adult when I try to incorporate a lot of this 
that communication is really different from one culture to another. And when I kind of embraced more direct communication about what I wanted and asking people what they wanted, you know, depending on where someone's coming from, I, I will sometimes be told that I'm coming off as aggressive or uh, even offensive. And I'm curious, you know, if you guys are touch upon or have researched kind of the difference between that line of, um, you know, cultural sensitivity versus, you know, just being able to be direct with my communication. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yes. Do you want to take yeah. this one, Marcia? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I love this question because <laughs> something I think about a lot, actually. Um, you know, I have dedicated my life towards helping people have much more explicit communication. Yet I am from the South, where people do not communicate directly, <laughs> and I have taught consent all over the United States. And there's, you know, very different cultural norms just within our country, much less, you know various subcultures and other nationalities mm-hmm. and, you know, whatever, ethnicities and so on. Um, so we do touch on this a little bit in the book. You know, we talk about the differences um, in cult- like It's creating consent culture. So we talk about culture and the creation of culture in the book um, and why it's important and how many different kinds of nuances there can be. Um, the other thing that I think kind of to your point, too, is, that's relevant that we talk about in the book is not everyone can – talk like not everyone has verbal communication even available to them Mm -hmm. um whether it's intellectual disability or physical disability or something else um so i guess i would say like this is not meant to be you know a panacea this is the one true way of doing consent Mm -hmm. the thing that we're really trying to do more than anything with the book like yes the words and the directness are important but the thing that um, with the workshop and the, you know, the exercises and all of that is to, to give young people just more awareness that something different could be going on over there than what's going on in them and to hold both of mm. those realities at the same time. Building those empathetic mm. skills, building curiosity about other people. And so while I personally am very much a fan of very direct communication, (laughs) to me, I would say it's almost more important that curiosity and empathy are present than the ability to just say a lot of the right words. (laughs) Um, Mm. And again, this is for young people. It's a one-on-one kind of book. You know, it's not not, uh, the end-all be-all for, you know, what's possible and these kinds of things. But... Um, I love this question so much because I think it's a really, um, I think the thing you're running into is actually a really common challenge. Once people do start to get into consent awareness and direct communication and asking for what you want, the people who have never encountered that before sometimes are like, what are you doing? (laughs) Um, And to me, it's just like more skills, the more skills, the more tools we have in our toolbox, the better. So. Um, yeah, I don't know if that speaks to your your core question. Yeah. But that's what we wrote about in the book. Were you going to say something, Please. Erica? Oh, um, yeah, in the book we talk about how, you know, some cultures really value, you know, uh, community 
over individualism and some cultures really value individualism over community and what that can mean and that it's not that one way is better than the other it's that to understand what our own biases are and that other people may have a different approach and um, and that when we're communicating even within the same culture we could have totally different connotations and meanings attached to the same word even so um, that like Marcia said with the curiosity ask more asking more questions and and having more space for um, being open to what the answers are mm-hmm. beautiful that's really helpful thank you yeah. thank you so much for calling in thank you absolutely Okay. Bye bye. So I was wondering if you guys would be willing to demonstrate one of the exercises so that we have a better idea of what it looks like. Sure. Sure. Um, so um, we have one exercise in the book um, for people to practice asking for what they want in just a fun way. So you're not actually ever going to get what you're asking for. And um, what we do is we put people into pairs and have have one of them ask the other, what do you want? And then the other one can say something that they want. Um, as, and it can be anything. It can be ridiculous. It can be unrealistic. It just can't involve sex or violence. And then once the other person says the thing that they want, the first person responds with, thanks for letting me know. Mm. And in the workshop, we would go on for a while, but we can just demonstrate what that looks like, um, just a back and forth. Okay. So, so Marsha, what do you want? I want a weighted blanket and a chocolate chip cookie. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for letting me know. What do you want? Erica, what do you Oh, you're asking me again. Oh, um, oh yeah. Uh, I don't know how to do this on the radio. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I want, um, oh, gosh, what do I want? I want uh, a rainbow. Ah. <laughs> Thanks for letting me know. And then, you know, we'd do that for like 30 seconds, and then you would change places. Um, okay, I want to hear and... what you want, Erica. So go ahead and ask her, Marcia. <laughs> Erica, what do you want? Um, I want, oddly enough, I want the temperature to go back down so that we don't have rain on top of four feet of snow. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) What do you want? Um, I would, I would really like to go to a cuddle party. That Mm, would be wonderful. Thank you. Mm, That's great. Thank you. You want to do another one? (laughs) One more. Um, one more. Yeah. What do you want? Oh, one more I want. Um, I would like to have. Uh, I'd like to have a hot chocolate as well. <laughs> That's great. Thank you, you guys, for demonstrating that. How sweet! I could see how that would be really fun for um, young people to do that as well. Um, I was just doing a consent exercise in a workshop recently, and I had so much fun with a friend. Um, the the exercise was that I could ask for anything and my partner had to say no. So, mm-hmm. and we, we didn't have the boundary because we were adults, so we did not have the boundary of, of no sex. So I was like, 
offering him like the craziest sexual things and he was like oh no and we just crack up and then the other the other part where we had to say yes we would we would ask for like you know can i stick my finger all the way in your nose or whatever and they'd have to say yes and we just laughed so hard at the crazy stuff we came up with but it was it was fun to have to say yes or no as part of the exercise you know um or do you do those kinds of exercises in the cuddle party Oh yeah, the um, the asking for the yeah. There's one that we do called yes, 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 no, 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 which is basically that exercise where you you get in triads actually, and um, mm-hmm. because at cuddle party it's non-sexual, but I've also played this in other workshops where you, other things are in bounds, and uh, two people are asking one person, and that person has to say yes to everything, and then they have to say no mm-hmm. to everything, and there's there's just something really liberating about being able to ask mm-hmm. for anything. And this is something when I'm coaching clients, um, I work with them also on creating spaces where desire can be expressed, where, where action is not the, like the, the expression of the desire, it's not even a request necessarily, it's I want to, you know, but just the space to talk about what you want is a little bit decoupled from immediately having to do something about it, which is really powerful. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that's really powerful with these ex- these kinds of exercises is noticing like, oh, I want to do that, or oh, I don't want to do that, or, you know, in the case of, you know, this where it's just saying thank you, you can consider how it would be to do that. But in the exercise that you just gave, Sumati, of like having to say yes or having to say no, noticing what that, when there's like, you know, alignment or dissonance in your body between what you're saying and how you feel, that can be a really powerful um, experience as well where you're like, I'm saying no, but I want to say yes, or mm-hmm. I'm saying yes, but I actually don't want to do that. And like really mm-hmm. noticing how that feels is really important, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, so I, I love consent games. I love asking for what you want games. <laughs> My favorite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. And what about people that don't know what they want? Like a lot of people are so used to not even thinking about what they want that they start out with like, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. So we have a couple of exercises to help people uh, check in with themselves and feel into their bodies and uh, to give themselves um, more clues to what they want. And uh, um yeah, it's just very, uh, it's about being, it being an embodied uh, practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you, Erica, yeah. have a, a history of sexual abuse. So have you found that other young people, like, might it might be scary for them to do that kind of embodiment work? Um, so the embodiment work that we, so the, uh, the exercises that we have um, for checking in with yourself, um, are designed to be uh, as safe as possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's really about um, just feeling in, there's an exercise of feeling into your body um, and just feeling the areas in your body when you think about something that you don't want, um, mm-hmm. that, that you notice. Noticing what happens in your body when you think about something you don't want. Noticing what happens in your body when you think about something you do want. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's another exercise um, where it's interactive, but not with other students, but with uh, or other people participants, but with um, 
objects in the room. So in that particular exercise, there's no actual interaction between people. It's um, between yourself and yourself. <laughs> I see. Uh-huh. Right. Sense. Right, right. Yeah. Marcia, you had something to add? Oh, yeah. I wanted to say we really tried hard to make this as accessible as possible to as many people as possible by by not going too deep too fast. And I, mm-hmm. I do believe there's so much available in just noticing mm-hmm. how you feel, noticing, like, your reactions to things in the room and keeping it as low stakes as possible while still having it be a meaningful or informational experience. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think we did a pretty good job of that. Um, There's, there's also um, a section on what I call desire smuggling, which is a term I coined in 2014 um, to sort of be an umbrella for all the things we do instead of asking for what we want to still try to get the things we want. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the ways we can also sort of notice what we want or that we want something, even if we don't know what it is, is by noticing how we might be trying to smuggle it in. Um, mm. And those desires, the, the desire smuggling can range from like really innocuous stuff, like one that I do all the time still, even after years of teaching, <laughs> is I'll do what I call options roulette, where I'll give you three options, and one of them is the one that I really, really want to do, but I don't want to out myself. <laughs> so I give you two other options that I can live with, and then like hopefully you'll pick the one I want. <laughs> So it's not even that desire smuggling is so it's not doesn't I mean some some of the desire smuggling things there's a whole chart in the book but some of them can be really toxic but a lot of them are also just not terribly effective <laughs> for getting right. they're not necessarily harmful they're just not effective you know hoping that you'll get what you want is not effective um, so when we can see the things that we're doing or when we can see the things that our friends are doing our partners are doing our loved ones are doing to try to get something, then we can bring our curiosity to the table and be like, oh, there's something I want or something they want. I wonder what it is. And then you can sort of from there figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> cool. So you have a chapter on something called the freeze response. Um, Erica, do you want to talk about what that is? I'd love to talk about what that is. Um, I really, um, it's one of my pet things that, I really want people to understand the freeze response better, understand what it looks like and why it happens. And um, because so the freeze response is an autonomic response that happens in less than 15 milliseconds when your body feels that you're in danger Mm -hmm. and that that flight or fright, sorry, fight or flight are not options. So, for anyone, for most people who are abused as children, they will have, they'll experience it first as a child. And another thing that happens is that once you've experienced it once, that you're more likely to go to that response in the future when you have trauma again. Mm-hmm. So uh, for me, uh, freeze comes up whenever I feel really um yeah, it's not even a, it's not a conscious decision. It's like your body feels that you're under threat and you go into freeze. And and how that looks when people go into freeze is that they might even still be able to um, form simple sentences. 
Um, in my case, the one time I drove while I was in a freeze response. Um, but but what happens is you, you're shutting down on a certain level so that you can't say what you want to say. Um, you The words aren't coming. You can't do what you want to do. Um, and... Uh, and it's also the most common response um, to sexual assault. So what happens is that people will go into a freeze response and um, they themselves won't understand what's happening. Um, I didn't understand it until just a few years ago, and I blamed myself. I would shame myself. I would be like, why didn't I say something? Why didn't I run away? Why didn't I whatever? And... Um, once I understood about the freeze response, I was, it was such a relief because it was like, oh, that is why. That's what's happening. And uh, so I just want everyone to learn about this because even in the justice system, not enough people understand about the freeze response. And it leads to a lot of victim blaming and victim shaming um, by victims themselves and by other people. And, uh, yeah, I was really disheartened. To, I just read a book about a case of a young woman in um, in New England, and when she went to court, they actually the um, the defense. She went to court. She took her uh, assailant to court, and the defense was able to disallow an expert to come in and talk about the freeze response in the court wow. case. Which I don't understand why that's even possible, but wow. it's really disturbing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think emotional um, emotional stuff just really gets disregarded in our legal system. Unless there's real physical abuse, it's not mm-hmm. taken seriously. Yeah. But this isn't an emotional response, and that's something I really want to be clear about. It's, it's a physical ah. response. Part of your, your prefrontal cortex turns off. Ah. Your limbic system takes over. Your body is flooded, and it happens in the, less than a blink of an eye. Uh-huh. So you have no conscious, you have no conscious control. Um, it changes the way blood circulates in your body. You'll form memories differently because um, the part of your brain that forms memories uh, switches off, and so their memories will be formed so that you'll remember certain things very vividly and other oh. things not at all. Wow! And um, so it's totally a physical response. It's not an emotional mm-hmm. response. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've seen that a lot with, you know, I've I've experienced that where I've been on a date and somebody does something inappropriate and I don't, you know, I, I don't say anything strongly. I, you know, I haven't had any really horrible assaults, but just even relatively minor things like being grabbed or something. And later I'm like, mm-hmm. why did why did I let that happen? And I've heard lots mm-hmm. of other women say that, too, who I consider, you know, really powerful, empowered women who kind of just let stuff happen and they're not really sure why. And then they kind of kicking themselves afterwards. So that really explains it. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. I felt really strongly when Erica started talking about this, I was like, we have to put this in the book because fight, flight and freeze are things mammals do. It's not just people like possums play dead. This is like the playing dead. Stay really still disassociate and it isn't a decision and I really want people to understand it's not 
oh, I've really thought through all of my options, and what I've decided <laughs> to do is to do nothing. Like, that's not what's happening. <laughs> and, you know, I think, what, I think where it also gets confusing for people is in sexual interactions when somebody's having a trauma response, maybe something that's happening is, like, on paper is fine, but there's a trigger. It reminds somebody of a past experience, and they also go into a freeze response I want people to be able to recognize it when it's happening to their partner. I've had this happen to partners of mine um, where they've gone into a freeze response in a sexual situation, and it isn't that they can't talk necessarily. Like sometimes there's still like, like Erica said, simple sentences or, or yes and no, but like there's a look in their eye or there's a sort of, thing and, and if you don't know that it exists and your partner's still kind of sort of grunting at you or like yeah kind of glassy eyed or has just gotten really still and you're like are you okay and they say yeah because they don't know what else to say because their brain has shut mm-hmm. off um mm-hmm. it can be really traumatizing for the person who continues too and I've talked mm-hmm. to a lot of people who've had that experience where they're like I didn't know my partner wasn't okay and now I've re-traumatized them. And now, you know, right. so learning about the freeze response in addition to fight or flight, you know, we think, oh, why didn't I yell? Why didn't I, why didn't I push them off? Why didn't I scream? You know, why didn't I run away? And it's like because we're mammals and we have more, we have three responses, not just two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, that's really fascinating. Um, well, yeah. let me just ask one more question before we run out of time. So do you think, Erica, that um, – if you've been traumatized as a child, you're more likely to go to freeze because you don't have the other two options as much, the fight or flight? It's just, it's much more likely, yes. Uh-huh. It's not that and you're then, not able to ever access the other. Um, I mean, your body decides, right? It's, it's, it's something that happens outside of your conscious control. Your body decides whether fight, flight, or freeze are the right choice. Um, uh-huh. for survival, but, but it's, it's just statistically it's shown that it's far more likely, you're far more likely to um, have the freeze response if you've ever had it before. And um, if you're a child, I mean, obviously a child doesn't have the same options for fight or flight generally. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 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 That's really interesting. Well, thank you. Well, this has been mm-hmm. so fabulous. I really appreciate both of you for, sharing all your wisdom with us and I wish you the best of luck with your book. Um, Thank you. Would one of you like to share again um, where people can get the book or anything else that you want to tell us about how to reach you and any offers that you want to make? It's yours. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So you can pre-order the book, which comes out on January 21st, next Friday uh, at creatingconsentculture.com, which is Erica's site. It's also available on my site, askingforwhatyouwant.com slash links. Um, and there's a bunch of different places you can, you can pre-order Amazon, JKP, who's our publisher, wonderful publisher. Um, there's an Indigo if you're in Canada. Um, so if you go to creatingconsentculture.com, you'll, you'll see all of those things. And we are going to be doing an online book launch party next week. Mm-hmm. So if you... Uh, go to creatingconsentculture.com. That is up or should be up soon if it's not already. Or follow either of us on social media and you'll hear all about it. 
I am um, at Ask Marsha B. M A R C I A. Ask Marsha B. On all the social media, and um, Erica is creating underscore consent underscore culture. Fabulous. So, what will happen at the book launch party? We're going to do some readings. We're going to have some of our colleagues come and chat with us. We're going to take questions. Um, anything can could happen. Bring your, bring your own <laughs> we're going to be on Zoom um, because COVID. Uh-huh. We wrote this entire yeah. book uh, while 1,500 miles apart from each other. We have not wow. been in person for the entirety of this enti- this whole process. So wow. I'm really looking forward to giving Erica a hug at a book uh-huh. event yeah. at some point. But, <laughs> but for the short term, our book launch party, uh, we're going to do one on Friday and another one on Sunday next week, um, the 21st and the 23rd. So uh, just go look for us online, and uh, we'll get you that, that info. Um, and you'll, you can hear some of the sections from the book and maybe even see some of our cool graphs and our fun little illustrations. We have all these little animal characters throughout the piggy and the octopus um, <laughs> who, who have little <laughs> conversations throughout. <laughs> so, so oh, that's yeah, that'll be yeah. fun. I think it'll be a that's good time. Good. And it'll be, it'll be interactive. Yeah. People can ask questions and it'll mm-hmm. be fun. That sounds like a lot of fun. I wanted a cake, though. I'm sad that we can't have a cake at my birthday party, but I will have a cake. We'll have an Bring in-person party cake. someday, and yeah. it will be a cake. Bring your own cake. BYOC. Well, thank you both. You've been a delight. Um, yeah, we'll talk to you soon, and we'll see you at the lunch party. Thank this you so much. Awesome. Thank you so thank much. You. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good night. Good night. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Okay, so that was a great show, and I just want to let everyone know that um, this radio show is now every other week, so the next show will be January 25th, when I'll have Carol and David, who have a very popular podcast with over a million subscribers about, I think it's called The Sexy Life, and they're going to talk about their sexy life, which I've been on their show before, and it's very sexy, so please join us on um, January 18th. Uh, sorry, January 25th for Leading Edge Love Radio. And um, we are now meeting at 5.30 p.m. Pacific Time, 8.30 Eastern Time. Uh, We'll talk to you then. Okay, bye-bye.